0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31, 1 Samuel 31, and we're also going to continue on into 2 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel 31 into 2 Samuel chapter 1. In the Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, First and Second Samuel are not divided. They're one book. We have divided them as we've translated uh, the Bible, and as you'll see this morning, they flow right together. So we're going to continue right into Second Samuel this morning and pray that God ministers to our hearts. As we uh, go to study the word, I just encourage you to settle in, settle in. You know, just take that moment to to really say, God, I'm giving you my focus. I'm I'm giving you my attention. I'm going to set my phone uh, aside and really asking God that you would, would speak to me. We know from the word of God that God tells us what makes the difference in hearing and receiving the word is the condition of our hearts is the condition of our hearts, and if we have that fertile soil, that soil that's ready for God's word to to plant, and I know for me, it's difficult to give my attention to God, to sit and to be still, but listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning as we read the word together. So let's pray. Father, we do calm our hearts. We want to be still before you. We recognize your presence. We thank you for your promise that your mercies are new this morning. As we've studied the life of Saul, God, we see Saul inside of us. We see the same tendencies, the same difficulties. And God, we pray that you would help us to live differently, that we could live a life that is surrendered to you as we have sang to you this morning. So we give you our attention. We give you the rest of the service. We ask that you would speak to us through the power of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at the final fall of Saul. The reason that I say it's the final fall of Saul is his life is really described by a fall. He started off well. He started off in humility. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied in his early days as a king. But he refused to live under God's authority, God's rule, God's direction. So ultimately, God rejected him as king. This morning, we're going to see that he dies, and his death is really fitting for the way that he lived. God is dealing with Saul in his judgment, Then it's going to transition to David. 2 Samuel is going to focus on David as the king of Israel. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. God had spoken to Saul that he was going to die the next day, that he was going to die in this battle. The Philistines had come to attack the children of Israel. Saul is fighting on Mount Gilboa. They're defeated. They, they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. We get the details in verse 2. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Abinadab, Malchishua, Saul's sons. There's one son that did survive. We'll see him later on in 2 Samuel. But Saul watches his three sons die upon Gilboa. Then Saul will die himself. This has to have been one of the most difficult moments in Saul's life. I wonder what he was thinking as he saw his sons take their, their last breaths, to die with him in battle. And we're going to focus on four things this morning, in Saul's fall in Saul's death what do we learn from from his death what do we learn from the way that he lived his life and the first is if you're taking notes pray this through is sin never just hurts you never, sin never just hurts you here we find his sons dying with him in battle as we've studied Jonathan's life he was an awesome man wasn't he A man that loved the Lord, that lived in character and integrity. Remember how he wanted to take a step of faith to go, let's see what God would do. So he goes to his armor bearer, let's climb this rock. If the Philistine garrison calls us up, then God's going to give us the victory. And God won a tremendous battle that day. A tremendous friend to David came alongside, even though he was set to be the next king, recognized God's calling and anointing on David and supported him, risked his, his life for him. In some senses, we may say, well, it's, it's not fair that Jonathan died in battle with his dad. Even here at the end of his life, Jonathan is still being faithful to his father, being faithful to his country, going into battle. And if you're a parent, it's humbling to think that our kids will generally follow us into battle. They're gonna go into the battlefields that we lead them into. And so that humbles me to say, I wanna lead them into the right battle. I I wanna lead them into the battle of the Lord and not into the battle that comes from my own rebellion and my own foolishness. A lot of times we think that, well, sin's just a personal choice, and it is. It's always our choice. We have the personal choice to choose sin, but you might be sitting here and thinking, well, why doesn't everybody get off my back? Why doesn't this pastor quit talking to me about sin? It's just hurting me. It's my life. I can do what I want to. But the reality of it is, is many, many people are being affected by our sin. We don't often talk about this, but the weight of sin is serious. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that we enjoy. If sin wasn't that big of a deal, then why would God have to send his son? There's really not any bigger statement about the weight and the seriousness of sin than the blood of Jesus, God's son. In order for us to enjoy forgiveness this morning, it costs God his son. He he died for my sin. So I don't want to develop a a casual attitude towards sin to go, I can just walk in rebellion to God and there's going to be no big deal. Saul seems to get away with it throughout his life. He, he seems to be able to live in rebellion to God without any severe consequences, then this moment comes and he watches his sons die. Sin doesn't just hurt me. It doesn't just hurt you. We're gonna hurt the ones that we love the most. But also this is true as we look at the life of Jonathan is Jonathan didn't walk in the same footsteps of his dad. And you might be saying, you know what, Eric? I, I understand the weight of other people's sin. I've suffered because of decisions my parents have made, because decisions my spouse has made, my close friends have made. Maybe you've even suffered because of decision that churches have made and church leaders as as we fail and we sin and we fall short and and it's affected your your life and you go, you know, I know the, the weight of sin, but you can choose to walk in a different path. It is an absolute fact that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree but we're not destined to make the same choices as our parents. Jonathan is proof of that. We've called this series in First and 2 Samuel, Kings and Sons. It's a story of kings and, and sons, and Jonathan gives us this valuable lesson that you can choose a different path. You can learn from the mistakes of your parents. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, amen? You're a new creation in Christ Jesus, The same spirit that lives in Christ, that rose Christ from the dead, lives in you. And so we don't have to say, well, I'm gonna make the same sin choices of my parents, and Jonathan's life is proof to that. If we learn something from Saul's life, it's the seriousness of sin, it's the, the weight of sin. If I could plead with your hearts this morning, if you are wrestling with sin, if there's an area of your life, maybe for some period of time, where you've been in rebellion to God, your hearts become callous. You've said, it's no big deal. I'm going to go ahead and hold on to this thing is look at this verse and see the reality of it and look into the eyes of your loved ones. It's never too late. It's never too late for repentance. God restores the repentant sinner in all of our lives. Saul never did that. Saul never got to that point of breaking and owning his sin before God. And now he watches his sons die. In verse three, The battle became very fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. It seems like Saul was able to just kind of step aside from death so many times, delivered into David's hands on two occasions, but David doesn't take things into his own hands. But now at this point, God's ordained time for judgment to come upon him. He is hit by the archer. He's wounded. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, "Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thus thrust me through and abuse me." But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. He knows he's dying, doesn't want the Philistines to come and mutilate him and abuse him. So he says to his armor-bearer, you, know, "You you do me in." The armor is like, no thanks, I'm afraid, there's, there's no way I'm going to do that. So he falls on his sword. Every detail in scripture is for our learning. Do you find it ironic that Saul died on his own sword, that he fell on his own sword? As we've looked at his life, what was his M.O.? How did he deal with people? He always had his spear in his hand. Lose his temper, get angry, and would love to try to pin people to the wall. Tried it with David on two occasions. Tried it with his own son, Jonathan. He lived by the sword. And now he dies by it. And it's our second lesson. It's our second thing to take note of. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Jesus taught us, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. I love mercy in my life. I need mercy in my life but it's difficult for me to extend mercy to others. If you're someone, if I'm someone, and we go through life, and we're constantly getting out our sword, we're constantly tearing people down, we're destroying people with our words, it's gonna catch up with us. Eventually, what we have measured out to others, which we've given out to others, It's gonna come back in our lives. We're gonna reap what we sow. So much better, instead of living by the sword, to live by mercy. Do you want mercy in your life? Do you want people to extend mercy to you? Do you want them to give you the benefit of the doubt, extend forgiveness? Then do that. Do that in your marriage. Do that with your kids. Do that with your friends, with the body, body of Christ. Jesus also taught us this lesson in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about ready to be arrested. Peter, the lovable disciple pulls out his sword and Jesus says this in Matthew 26 verse 52 put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword is that for you this morning you've been living by the sword and the spirit of God speaking to your heart saying put your sword away Quit attacking people with with your words. Quit destroying others. Quit being so quick to take up your your weapon and take up mercy. Take up grace and and forgiveness. So he falls upon his sword. Verse 5, And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all of his men died together that same day. The armor-bearer sees that Saul is dead. They're defeated in battle, falls upon his own sword. We have the tragic end to a tragic life. Israel was the one that came up with the idea to have a king. It wasn't God's intent. His intent was that they would be ruled by God. Saul rejects God's authority, never repents and now ends in this way. Would you rather end like Saul or the Apostle Paul? I would choose the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said this at the end of his life, his last letter, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Second Timothy 4.7. We want to finish the race full stride. When you think about a race, it's important how, how you finish. In this race with the Lord, in this journey with the Lord, we're going to have times that we stumble. We're going to have times that we fall. David, will see in his life that has great sin and great compromise. But the difference between David and Saul is David would get back up. He would walk in repentance. He would turn back to the Lord. I want to finish the race, the race that God has set before me. God has a specific journey, a specific race for each of us. And are we going to finish it well? at the end of our lives that we could say i've finished the race i've kept the faith i haven't been perfect man i sure sinned but i finished all that god had for me i got up and i kept running what does this mean i think it really looks like on a daily basis walking with the lord a daily basis surrendering to the lord being in relationship with the lord have you gotten a little bit complacent in your race Have you lost sight of the fact that God has things for you to do? He's got good works that were ordained for you, for me, before the foundations of the world. That's exciting. God's in control of our lives. As long as we have breath, there's a purpose for us to be here. And we want to finish strong. How we end is important. And how Saul ended his life was tragic. Verse 7 And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came in and dwelt in them. A tremendous defeat for Israel. Yes, Saul and his sons are dead, but they lose these cities. They run out in fear, and the Philistines come in and are now dwelling in these Israelite cities. So it happened the next day when the Philistines had come to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. This is what you do in warfare. You go and you go to the dead and you take anything valuable, anything worthwhile, weapons off of the dead. I don't know the story. My grandpa never shared it. He was in World War II, but he came home with a a Nazi German pistol. It's a little thirty-two caliber My dad has it. We were looking at it a couple weeks ago up at his house, and it has the swastika symbol on the pistol. It's got a leather pouch, and the swastika symbol is there. And my grandpa would never share how he came about that pistol, but he came came home with it. But I imagine it's something like this. In battle, there's, there's dead men and going through and, and taking off. I would love to know the story, but it's, it's something that passed with, with my grandpa. And, and you see here that they're going through, they're doing the same thing. They're, they're taking the weapons off of, off of the dead, and they come upon Saul. And they cut off his head and stripped him of his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it to the temple of their idols and among the people Then they put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. To really understand this, we have to understand the culture of the Middle East that continues to this day. It's a culture of honor and shame. Honor and shame. To where in the Middle East, if you do something that's shameful, it shames your family, and it's a big deal. If you do something to, to honor your family, it, it's a big deal. Much, much more so than what we understand in, in a Western culture. They're really making a statement here to shame Saul, to shame Israel. He dies in, in shame. His head is cut off. His armor becomes a, a trophy in their pagan god temple. And then his body is pinned to the wall for everybody to see this is what we have done to your leader. But we do understand this if we put it in a military context. We're so thankful for our men and women that serve in our, our military. And if things happen to our soldiers and they get humiliated even after they're dead and their, their heads are cut off and their, their bodies are put up in this manner... It, it angers us as a country, and rightly so, doesn't it? Because they're, they're making a statement, and they're saying, we shame you, we're, we're humiliating you. If they took our president, the president of the United States, and someone who is an enemy of our country, and did this to our president, it would be a huge statement. And when we stop and think about it, we understand that the, the statement that the Philistines are making. In verse 11, now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, and all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Why would these men from Jabesh-Gilead travel all night, risk their lives to take down the bodies of Saul and his three sons? Yes, it has to do with this honor and shame that we just talked about. But even more so, Saul had delivered the city of Jabesh Gilead earlier on in 1 Samuel. Their lives were indebted to Saul, and so they're showing their gratitude. They're showing their appreciation to Saul. David's going to compliment these men in chapter 4 for what they've done, for their valor in going and taking Saul's body and his sons, they, they burned their bodies. Their bodies were so mutilated, they had to burn their bodies and gave their bones a proper burial. Let's go to chapter one of 2 Samuel. It gives us more detail on the same event. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David had stayed two days in Ziglag. Remember, David was going through his own trial. He'd come to Ziglag And their families had been taken captive. They go after the Amalekites, are able to take back their families and all of their possessions. And so David has just come off of that, and he gets word of what's taking place. And on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp. With his clothes torn and dust on his head... So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrate himself. So clearly he's coming out of battle. He's all undone. His clothes are torn. He's got dirt on his face. And he lays down before David. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his sons, are dead also. David gets news now of what has taken place. Israel's fled. Israel is defeated. Saul and his sons are dead. What would it have been like for David to hear this news? To some degree, maybe some relief that Saul is dead. Saul's ruined his life from one sense. One could possibly describe it that way. Has been his enemy. Has chased him all throughout Israel. Jonathan's his best friend. His heart is knit to Jonathan. They've made a covenant together. What I want you to see in the rest of our study this morning is the way that David responds. Because the way that he responds shows a heart of, of forgiveness. He's actually honestly grieving the death of Saul as well as Jonathan. So David said to the young man who told him, How did you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? He, he wants the details. Someone that you care about, that you love, if they've passed away, you want the details. So what happened in the car accident? You know, tell me of the medical condition. What happened in the the heart attack? I want the details of of that night and that event. And, And David wants to verify that this has taken place. How do you know that they're dead? The young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear and indeed, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered and said, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Well, I thought from chapter 31 that he died when he fell upon his sword. So, what's going on here? There's a couple of possibilities. One is that indeed Saul did die when he fell upon his sword, and this Amalekite is lying. He he came upon Saul, Saul was dead. He took his crown and his bracelet, he's trying to impress David who is obviously gonna be the new king. That's one possibility. Or it is that that Saul did in fact fall upon his sword, but he didn't die. He was close to dying, but didn't fully die. And then the Amalekite comes and knocks him off and, and gives him the final blow. Both of those are possibilities. But there is a really important truth here, either way, that I don't want you to miss, and that's this. Saul really got in difficulty with God when it had to do with who? The Amalekites. God had told him, you need to go destroy all the Amalekites. Now, please understand that. The Amalekites had attacked Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness, when they were weak and vulnerable, and God had pronounced judgment upon the Amalekites. God's righteous in, in his judgment. And so God had given that to Saul, you need to go do this, and Saul didn't fulfill that. He chose, not because he couldn't, but a willful choice to leave the king alive, to leave some of the cattle alive, Samuel comes on the scene, and Saul's like, yep, I obeyed completely. And remember, Samuel's like, well, what's all that sheep that I hear, you know? And Saul made it out like he just left King Agag alive, but he probably left more Amalekites alive as well, because here we find an Amalekite. Here's an Amalekite, and God is giving us a really important lesson at the end of Saul's life, and it's this partial obedience will bring complete destruction. Partial obedience will bring complete destruction. Saul didn't destroy the Amalekites, and now an Amalekite destroys him. An Amalekite comes and takes his crown and takes his his bracelet. And the Old Testament gives us pictures or illustrations of New Testament truths. And the New Testament talks a lot about our flesh. It's our sinful nature that we're to live a crucified life. We're gonna talk more about that this Wednesday night in Galatians chapter two. What does a crucified life mean? It means that we reckon our old man to be dead. Our sinful nature is alive and well. And we have to remind our sinful nature, you're dead and I am alive to Christ. Daily crucifying our, our flesh. And if we don't crucify our flesh completely, if we choose to walk in partial obedience, in the end result... It's going to bring destruction in our lives. It may look like this, that there's some sin struggle in our lives. Now, if we're honest, we all have a handful of things that are difficult in the area of sin to get through. Hopefully, we have compassion upon each other because, again, if we're honest, we know that they're there for all of us. Amen? (laughs) They're there for all of us. And we're going, man, I've tried to get over this. I've tried to have victory. And to some extent, maybe there has been some victory, and it's easy to kind of get to that place of going, well, it's a lot better than it used to be, you know. I, I I'm sure a lot more gentle than I used to be, you know. The, the lust is a, a lot more in control than it used to be, or it's a lot better than the rest of my family. Man, if you knew my family member and you knew where I came from, you would be giving me kudos. You'd be taking me to dinner, right? And there's maybe a little bit of pride comes in, or we start to compare ourselves with friends that we have, or people that are in our neighborhood, or you, you fill in the blank, and we settle for partial obedience. But maybe even other times we just willfully choose partial obedience. We're not going to do in the flesh completely. There's a part of us that sees the flesh as a benefit to us. I'm not really ready to deal with sexual sin in my life. I'm really not ready to, to deal, deal with the lust. I'm going to continue to leave open access uh, to that. I'm going to keep that relationship going. I'm going to make sure I still have some access to, to some pornography. You know, I, I know I can't be angry all the time and raging on everybody, but I'm not really fully ready for God to deal with my anger because sometimes it's really effective. Sometimes it really helps me get, get done what I need to. And, and actually, it's a part of my identity. It's kind of part of who I am. People know me to be angry. I'm Irish. Go Irish, right? And we're known for our tempers. So I, I'm not going to let the, this go. And if we're honest, we don't. We don't want to let it go. We, we've fallen in love with our sin a bit. We've been attached to it. It was a willful choice of Saul to walk in partial obedience. And then it comes around and it destroys him completely. And Romans 8 verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. So we're struggling with sin. We look to the Spirit of God. We look to the Word of God. We cry out to our High Priest, Lord, help me not to justify this. I choose not to be in love with it. I choose to see it for what it is, crucify it, nail it to the cross, and look for you to bring bring victory. Is the Spirit bringing something to your heart and mind? An area of partial obedience, where you've given yourself the pass, the hall pass remember those in school? Those were great. Get the hall pass. I've given myself the hall pass, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's saying, don't settle. Don't settle for partial victories. Don't settle for partial obedience. Allow the Lord to bring complete victory in our lives. It's always going to be a struggle. It's always going to be temptation, always going to be a challenge, but to continue to press in and to fight that battle. Verse 11, "'Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, "'and so did all the men who were with him. "'David's honestly grieving for Saul and Jonathan. "'And they mourned and they wept, "'and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, "'for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, "'because they'd fallen by the sword. "'Then David said to the young man who told him, "'Where are you from? "'And he answered, I'm the son of an alien.' An Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, and your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David didn't kill the Lord's anointed. David chose not to kill Saul, and so here this young man kills Saul, or at very least takes his crown and his bracelet, and so David kills him. David has him executed. Then David lamented with lamentation over Saul and over his son. It would be so easy to leave Saul off of that sentence, right? That David lamented over the death of Jonathan, but he rejoiced over the death of Saul. Come on, come on. Somebody's destroying your life. They're trying to kill you. You're living out in the wilderness. This goes on for years and then they've died. Whew, relief. So glad that they're out of my life. Thanking God for justice. Lord, thank you for finally bringing this justice and bringing it down. You may just have a boss that you don't like, a boss that you want to get away from, and then that boss loses their job. And you're like, praise the Lord from whom all blessings flow. You know, it's like, God, you're so good. They're, they're out of my life. See you later. Good, good riddance, you know. And David, that wasn't his heart. He knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And he mourns for him and he laments to the point where he writes this song. David was a songwriter. He wrote many of the Psalms. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it's written in the book of Jasser. The Song of the Bow, it's an interesting title. The Song of of Being a Warrior. And he specifically wants it taught to the children. This to me speaks because in the, the moment where Israel has lost a huge battle, the king is dead, the king's sons are dead, David still has hope for the future and is moving into the future by the children learning this song. He's saying, I believe God's gonna continue to work in future generations and they need to know this piece of our history with Saul and Jonathan. In real difficult times of loss and tragedy, we have to continue to move forward. Otherwise, we're gonna get swallowed in the despair. We're gonna get swallowed in the discouragement and David has the foresight to see the children even in this moment of pain. So he writes this song and I'm gonna primarily read it then we're gonna talk about it. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. May this not get out to the Philistines so they don't rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, let there not be dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil." David, in his song, says, let Mount Gilboa be cursed. May it not be fruitful, because the Lord's anointed has died there. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than Than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle, Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, for you have been very pleasant to me. You love me, your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. We do have to stop and talk about that a little bit. Unfortunately, people have taken this verse, verse 26, and they've completely perverted it. They've completely twisted it. The Bible says to the pure, all things are pure. Some people assume that Jonathan and David were in some kind of homosexual relationship because of this verse, because he said this. That's not what's being declared at all. He's simply saying that Jonathan was a great friend. And his love to me, his faithfulness to me, was beyond beyond women. He's not saying that I loved Jonathan as as a woman. We look at David's uh, relationship with his wife, Michael. It was difficult at times. Saul, Saul's daughter. We'll see that as we go into to Second Samuel. He's he's expressing how true of a friend Jonathan was. Not that they were in some kind of twisted relationship. In verse twenty seven, how the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. So here's our last point. Here's the last thing that we learned from the final fall of Saul, and it's this. Fight for a heart of forgiveness. Fight for a heart of forgiveness. David maintained a heart of forgiveness through this whole time to where now it's manifested here. It's manifested at the death of Saul. Because if he didn't have a heart of forgiveness, he couldn't mourn in this fashion. He couldn't ask people, to remember Saul in a good light. He couldn't bring out any of the good traits of Saul. So here's a few things I think that help us to fight for a heart of forgiveness. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, you know this. You probably have at least one or two Sauls in your life. People that make your life really difficult and downright do evil at times. If not, you will. You will have them. You will have the privilege of of experiencing that. And hopefully we don't become a Saul in other people's lives. So how do we maintain a heart of forgiveness? David chose to trust in the power and authority of God. And these points come from David Guzik, a commentary on this section of scripture, is he chose to trust in God's power and authority. And that's where it starts. God, you have ordained for this Saul to be in my life. You are ordaining for these spears to be thrown at me. So, I'm trusting that you're teaching me. I'm trusting that you're working. I'm trusting that you're going to take care of this Saul in your time. David chose to let it go. He chose to not allow bitterness and hurt to build up. And this is a choice that we make. Is bitterness a sin? Yes. So, that means that bitterness is a choice. I'm not a victim to bitterness, it's a choice that I make of choosing not to forgive and choosing to hold on to that hurt to continue to play that film in our hearts and our minds. It's very easy to, to fall into, but he chose to, to not allow the bitterness to come in. And then also, David chose to think the best about Saul. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love thinks no evil. Who is the accuser of the brethren? Anybody got it? It's an easy one. Who's the accuser of the brethren? All right, all five of you. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan. Satan is, right? So what does he do? He comes in your life all the time to say, you know what, you're a loser. God doesn't love you. He can't forgive you. He's looking down upon you, but he also does that with us to others, where we look at other people in our lives and we think evil about them. He loves for us to do that. So someone has hurt us. Satan's right there tempting us to be bitter and to think evil, Even happens in marriage and family. All of a sudden, you just got all these thoughts towards your spouse. my spouse doesn't really love me. If if they loved me, they wouldn't talk about this. I bet my life would be better without them. I bet my life would be better with with somebody else. Start thinking it towards brothers and sisters in Christ. I come in here every week and nobody even talks to me and nobody likes me and, you know, forget church. I'm not even gonna go to church anymore. I'm not even gonna look for, for a new church. Where do you think that comes from? accuser of the brethren. And so David had to fight for this. David had to choose for this. The temptation would have been very real to think the evil of Saul, but instead he chooses to think the best of him, and it comes out in this song. I don't know that I could say anything good about Saul if I was David. There's a lot of work in his heart to be able to get to this place. David chose to remember that God had forgiven him. Already in David's life, He's had some big gaffes, some big sins, some big struggles. This whole time that he was with the Philistines, and God forgave him, and God graciously delivered him. And I think this is the key to forgiveness. This is the key to not having a hard heart, for us to think about how much that God has forgiven us. If sin is serious, I've done a whole lot to offend a holy God, and God has forgiven me so, so very much. And when I'm remembering that, and I'm dwelling on how much God has forgiven me, it's a lot easier to forgive the Saul in my life. Reality point, reality check. God has forgiven me way more than this Saul in my life, amen? So I'm simply extending the grace that God has given to me. I'm choosing to forgive. In Ephesians, it tells us, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Why does the Father forgive us? Because of Christ. He looks at the sacrifice of Christ and he forgives. And so for us to have a heart of forgiveness, we look at the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus, you paid for it, you died for it. You're gonna hold them accountable. I'm not the one bringing consequences in their life. I'm gonna forgive. It comes from understanding that I'm forgiven. And then finally, David chose to keep doing these things. He just kept doing them because this has been my experience with forgiveness. I may choose to forgive in a moment like this, But then by the time the Bronco game is on this afternoon and I'm watching the Bronco game, all those feelings are coming up in my heart and my mind. How could they? Who are they? I'm tired of them messing with my life. This thing and that thing. I got to forgive. God, you've forgiven me. I've chosen, chosen, chosen (laughs) to to forgive. We're going to take communion. We're going to enter into communion right now. I think that this is... A perfect message to prepare us for for communion, and this is why: is because there is a lot more of Saul in us than we want to admit. Sin hurts. Sin destroys lives. Come look at afresh at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're told in communion to remember His sacrifice, Jesus, who died for my sin. To examine our hearts, God, is there anything? in my heart and life, that's standing between me and you in relationship to confess sin, to receive forgiveness afresh. Oh, Lord, you, you convicted me this morning of some partial obedience in my life. Oh, I'm bitter. I haven't been forgiving. Let that go this morning. Choose to forgive. Embrace God's forgiveness. Extend it to others. So let's stand and let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. And we want to draw near to you right now in communion. We pray that you would bless this time of taking communion, that it wouldn't be a tradition, it wouldn't be a ritual, that you would meet us in in a very fresh way. God, that you would set us free of bitterness, you would convict us of sin, that we would walk away beholding your glory closer to you. So bless this time in Jesus' name, amen.